When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Radio Era. Tonight, listeners, we present the story of a famous partnership in the Irish theatre of today. The partnership of Hilton Edwards and Michael Mockley-Moyd with extracts from some of the plays and entertainments they have produced since their foundation of the Dublin Gate Theatre 29 years ago. The programme has been devised and is produced by H.L. Morrow and those taking part include Hilton Edwards, Michael Mockley-Moyd, Coralie Carmichael, Madame Bernard Cogley, Dennis Johnston, Betty Chancellor, Gerard O'Loughlin, the Earl of Longford, C.P. Curran, Muriel Moore, Walter Starkey, and Orson Welles. So, on with the show, Hilton and Michael. Nineteen twenty-eight. That's when it began. The year some theatre goers will remember as the year of the Desert Song. It was also the year of Showboat. It was the year of the first talking, the singing fool with Al Jolson. Climb up on my knee, sonny boy. Boy, you're only three, sonny boy. 1928? Don't tell me it's as long ago as that. It is almost 30 years ago. 30 years since the black and gold bills went up outside the Peacock, the little theatre that grew like a productive wen on the neck of the Abbey. Dublin Gate Theatre Studio at Peacock Theatre, Abbey Street. Tonight and until October 27th only, Ibsen's Pierre Gint. Those were the words on the very first poster, the billing of the first Gate Theatre production. The notion of the Gate Theatre was born in the minds of three players a full 12 months before that. Two of the players were English and newcomers to Ireland, Hilton Edwards and Coralie Carmichael. The third was Irish, Michal Mochliamo. All three were touring Ireland with Annie McMaster's Shakespearean Company, and it was summer. One wet day, sheltering in a pub, maybe in Limerick, maybe in Tipperary, it might have been Nina. Hilton remarked to Michael, How would you like a theatre of your own? Mm -hmm. I don't mean now, I don't mean for ages. Yes, but where do you think we Oh, it could be in your precious Dublin, if you like. You know, something like Peter Godfrey's Gate Theatre in London. A break away from Shakespeare for a bit. Yes. There are lots of exciting things from Germany and Russia and all over the place. Oh, I know. Yes, but how do you think Dublin would react? That's what I'm wondering. You know, I can't get it out of my head that Dublin's most avid appetite really is for Professor Tim and no, no, Nanette. Don't you think so, Carly? You know it's true. I mean, oh, there's a Casey, of course, I agree. But don't forget that the two playwrights who created the Abbey, Yeats and Singh, nowadays they're playing to half-empty houses. Well, the small theatre's all you want. Well, for a start. Now, get a few enthusiasts and tell them they bloody well can't come in on their cards. Ah, that's important. And don't forget, Michael... 
that you're a designer as well as an actor and a playwright. Well, you know, Coralie's reference to my being a playwright wasn't in the least ironical. I had written a play, a play called Girma and Grania. Now I've got something to work for. We'll make a theatre if the only show we do in it's your bloody play. Mm. We three are going to get a bit of capital somehow and we'll open in Dublin before the year's out. Things in the theatre have a curious way of tumbling out of sequence, of proceeding from A to K by way of X, Y and Z. And so it was that quite a while before this, Hilton and Michael had been staying in Dublin in a small hotel in Cavendish Row, overlooking the Rotunda Hospital. One summer morning, they stood looking out of the window at the traffic below, at the graceful 18th century building opposite. It's marvellous. What is it? Yeah, oh, that's the Rotunda. It's a wing of the Rotunda Hospital, where thousands of Dublin babies are born. You can't see the hospital part from here, but it's really quite lovely. And what's that other porchway just opposite? Mm -hmm. A bit to the right with a couple of steps. Yes, that one with the square pillars and three windows above, and and a coat of arms. Yeah, that's some shilling dance hall or other. It used to be a concert hall, you see. Lots of people will tell you that Handel played there, but in point of fact, he did Handel did blow. This is tremendous. Let's go out and have a look at it. So we did go out and have a look at it. In sunshine, that was the color of champagne, but never for one single moment did we guess that we'd been looking at our future theater. The birth of the Gate Studio Theatre took place in the little annex theatre of the Abbey, the Peacock, which had a capacity of precisely 100. Some while before the opening, Michael was asked to become the first producer of the Taivyach Nagalyev, Ireland's first all-Irish theatre, and to present as its first production his own play, Diermud August Gronje. But before the first production at the Peacock, the Gate Company bravely and ambitiously issued a prospectus of productions to come. These included, besides an English version of Diemet August Gronje, Oscar Wilde's Salome. The first public performance in these islands, Eugene O'Neill's The Hairy Ape, The Theatre of the Soul by Nicholas of Vrenoff, and Eugene O'Neill's Anna Christie. Well, nothing like this had ever been heard or heard of in Dublin ever. To most people, most theatre people especially, it sounded just lunacy. Well, Hilton had been stumping the city, pleading, arguing, buttonholing, bulldozing, raising subscriptions, for the theatre was to be run on a club basis. Two new directors of the company were created, Madame Bernard Cogley, more widely known as Toto, and Geroyd O'Loughlin. Toto, of course, was known everywhere in Dublin, except as she would be the very first to agree in Rathmines and other more genteel suburbs. It was at the end of June 1928 that I met the boys, as we still call them. They were then looking for somewhere to start their theatre, and Conti Leventhal had told them to get in touch with me as being someone trying to work on the same lines. At that time, I was presenting cabaret every Saturday night in premises in South William Street, which we had somewhat optimistically labelled the Little Theatre. The boys were brought round one Saturday evening by Bulmer Hobson. We talked and talked, or rather Hilton talked, Michael punctuated and I glowed with enthusiasm. Before the night was out, I knew that my dreams and hopes were realised. Before they left, I had asked them to appear at my cabaret. They agreed and said they'd do a scene from Macbeth. I gave them a decor contrived from two wicker baskets covered with a large purple velvet cape, one of my most cherished props. 
I still have it, its figures in many pr productions. The lighting was most effective, red and blue gelatines over biscuit boxes, and so were presented for the first time together in Dublin the two young men who have since made theatre history in Dublin and Ireland. Soon it was decided to secure the Peacock Theatre for the first production. The Studio Cabaret was then flourishing, with a membership of 400. We had moved from South William Street to 41 Hawkett Street. In two weeks we raised 350 guineas. The Peacock was secured, and soon we were casting our first production, Pierre Gint. As I was more interested in production and management, I was appointed business director, quite the worst choice that could have been made. I did my best to cope, with the help of my son Mitchell, who, God help him, was never cut out for a business. However, we carried on till Ida Hughes came along and confidently and efficiently took charge. Backstage, Don Beau was working on the sets from Michael's designs, and Johnny Mackesy was learning from Hilton the intricacies of lighting effects. And so in a theatre with a capacity of only 102, and on a stage whose absurdly small measurements were no more than 16 feet wide by 8 feet high, the Dublin Gate Theatre Studio gave its first performance, Henrik Ibsen's five-act immense Pierre Gint, with Hilton in the title role and with miraculous settings by Michael, who didn't play in the show because most of his time was still taken up with the Tyviach in Galway. Michael, I've always wondered, mm -hmm. why did you start with such an absurdly ambitious play as Pierre Gint? Well, we wanted to do it. We always had. Pierre Gint was one of the first ideas that Hilton and I found we had in common. Oh, there was, of course, a practical reason, too, that the play happens to suit a group with one fine actor. Provided you have that one fine actor, you can get by with a crowd of talented and willing, but in the main inexperienced players, to fill the supporting parts. Besides, we, we also had what seemed to us the obvious button mouldering, Gero de Lochlan and our grand Arthur and Mrs. May Carey. And besides that, there was the, the green-clad one, you remember the green-clad one, and, and the lovely feline Anitra in Corley, who doubled the parts. The only complete professionals besides Hilton and Corley that I can remember were Paul Farrell and Gero de Lochlan. Gero de Lochlan was in every sense a man of many parts and many achievements, in this first thundering production. As there were few experienced players available in Dublin those days, and in view of the big cast, most of us had to double. In my own case, I had even to treble, playing ass like the Smith in Act One, the Swede trompeter stroller in the Morocco scene, and in the last act, the button molder. Three complete changes of costume and makeup. Well, a nightly job of mine off stage was to contrive the big explosion at the end of the, the Morocco scene when the ship in which Pierre Gunt's double-crossing confederates are about to make their getaway blows up in the harbour. As we had no effects records in those days, we had to resort to handmade methods. This meant that when the cue came, concealed in the wings, I had to lift as high as possible a 56 pounds weight and crash it down on a large square of zinc plating. Yes, it made a thundering good bang all right. It shook the little stage and everyone adjacent. Including, including the nearest of the front row audience, who were nearly lifted out of the seats. One of the most memorable scenes in that production, the Gate Company's first, 
was the death of Aza in Act Three. Aza is lying in bed. To her comes Pierre, her wandering son. Now, Mother, we'll chat together, but only of this and that. Forget what's awry and crooked and all that is sharp and sore. I see now, the same old pussy. So she's alive then still? She makes such a noise o' nights now. You know what that bodes, my boy. Are you thirsty? I'll fetch you water. Can you stretch you? The bed is short. Let me see. If I don't believe now, it's the bed that I had when a boy. Do you mind, dear, how often in the evenings you sat at my bedside here and spread the fur coverlet o'er me and sang many a lilt and lay? <laughs> I mind you. And then we played sledges when your father was far abroad. The coverlet served for sledge apron and the floor for an ice-bound fjord. Aye, but the best of all, though, Mother, do you mind that too? The best was the Fleetfoot horses. I think you I forgot. It was Carly's cat that we borrowed. It sat on the log scoop chair. To the castle west of the moon and the castle east of the sun. In Soria Moria Castle, the king and the prince give a feast. On the sledge cushions lie and rest you. I'll drive you there over the heath. But, Pierre, dear, am I invited? Aye, that we are, both of us. Gee up! Will you stir yourself, black boy? Mother, you're not a cold. Aye, aye, but the pace one knows it when Grane begins to go. Why, Pierre, what is that ringing? The glittering sledge bells, dear. Mercy, how hollow it's rumbling. We are just driving over a fjord. I'm afraid. What is that that I hear rushing and sighing so strange and wild? It's the sough of the pine trees, mother, on the heath. Do you but sit still? There's a sparkling and gleaming afar now. Whence comes all this blaze of light? From the castle's windows and doorways. Don't you hear that dancing? Yes. Outside the door? Stands St. Peter and prays you to enter in. Does he greet us? He does with honour and pours all the sweetest wine. Wine? Has he cakes as well, Pierre? Cakes? Aye, a heaped up dish. And the dean's wife's getting ready for your coffee and your dessert. Lord, Lord, shall we two come together? As freely as ever you will. Oh, dearie, Pierre, what a frolic you're driving me to, poor soul. Gee up! Will you stir yourself, black boy? Dear, dear, you're driving right. Aye, broad is the way. This journey makes me so weak and tired. There's the castle rising before us. The drive will be over soon. I will lie back and close my eyes then and trust to you, my boy. Come up with your Gurani, my trotter. In the castle, the throng is great. They bustle and swarm to the gateway. Pierre Dint and his mother are here. What say you, Master St. Peter? Shall mother not enter in? You may search a long time, I tell you, where you find such an honest old soul. For myself, I don't want to speak of. I can turn at the castle gate. If you'll treat me, I'll take it kindly. If not, I'll go off just as pleased. But her, you shall honor and reverence and make her at home indeed. There comes not a soul that's better from the parishes nowadays. Oh, here comes God the Father. St. Peter, you're in for it now. 
have done with these jack-in-office heirs, sir. Mother Arza shall enter free. Hi! Didn't I tell you what had happened? Now they dance to another tune. Mother, what makes your eyes so glassy? Mother, have you gone out of your wits? You mustn't lie there and stare so. Speak, Mother. It's I, your boy. You can rest yourself, Grane, for e'en now the journey's done. For all of your days, I thank you for beatings and lullabies. But see, you must thank me back now. That was the driver's fare. What? Pier? Ah, then we are over the worst of the sorrow and need. Dear Lord, but she's sleeping soundly. Oh, can, can she be? Hush. She is dead. See, mother buried with honor. I must try to fare forth from here. Are you faring afar? To seaward. So far? Aye, and further still. received with unanimous acclamations by the Dublin press. Ibsen's verse in William Archer's translation is uh, wooden. To our mind, the choice of the play was unfortunate. A quite astonishing evening. The music reminded us of nothing more than a penny gaff. On the whole, a praiseworthy effort. Mr. H. Edwards of the name part certainly gave a capable display of activity. Our audiences, although alarmingly small at first, were vociferously enthusiastic, and somehow or other we struggled on. There was no question of making any money, and those of us who received a salary at all never drew more than three pounds a week. Once, I remember, a flood lamp was smashed at rehearsal, and Hilton said... There goes our profit for a whole bloody fortnight. One of the earliest productions was Eugene O'Neill's The Hairy Ape. It's interesting to learn that O'Neill, at this critical period in his career, was immensely encouraged by the production of several plays by the Dublin Gate Theatre Company. This is pointed out by Dr. Walter Starkey, who was later to become uh, a director of the company. And I was uh, talking to the widow of Eugene O'Neill. And I always, I'd always felt as a kind of gospel O'Neill's connection with our theatre. He, in a sense, gave us a new life. Because the time when O'Neill's plays began to come over here, and then we started to produce them. It gave us a new life in the Irish theatre. I always feel it gave new life to O'Casey. I always felt that it was one of the things, the back of O'Casey. 
And one of the interesting she said to me that O'Neill never forgot this, this, in a sense, tribute he got from Ireland. I mean, he was so, he always felt that nobody but Irish actors could do his plays. And that's why I was at the last night recently, it was in, in, in actually the beginning of July in New York, the last night of the moon of the misbegotten, that posthumous play of Eugene O'Neill, after all, one of the greatest figures of our world theatre in our, in our years. And the person who stole the whole play was Cusack. And it was there, the Irish actor. And it was simply on that curious kind of intensive acting that we get in the O'Neill plays. And that's why I feel, in a sense, so proud that in Dublin we have had this, um, you might say, this new force that came in with, Michael, with Hilton Edwards and Michael McLearmore to revivify our theatre. Another of the earliest productions was an English version of Michael's Diermut and Gronje. Let's recall for a moment one of the loveliest scenes in the play. It's towards the end of Act Two, the scene in the sea cavern in which Diermud, after slaying Kirch of Humor, is left alone with Gronje. That is the laughter of the Fomor who keen his death. He is dead. He is dead. Let the waves of the sea take back his body to themselves. Why did you kill him, dear Mid? He was my enemy. Was there no other cause that you killed him? What other cause? Did you not kill him because... Because? Because you were jealous, dear Mid. Because when you saw his cold green hands about my body, you were jealous. I killed him because he was my enemy. Jermud, oh, you anger me. You anger me. Well, why is that, daughter of the king? I could kill you. I would see you dead, my grief. Cold and dead at my feet. Oh, Gronje. Woman who never took a step aright. Though you are beautiful as a tall blossoming tree in the country of the young. Though your hair is the color of the yellow flag flower in the summer, and your body is white like the foam and your eyes more clear than the dew of the grass, yet your love is as frail as smoke and your hatred as nimble as flame. I have lost my own people by you and by your druid bonds, Gronje, and the friends of my heart and the men that used to hunt with me and fight with me and play with me. I have lost the peace of the hills and the music of the woods and the freedom of the waters by you. I have lost the sun and the moon and the white stars out of the sky by you. Oh, Grania, little white fawn of the mountains, it was a bad night that you gave your love to me and Tara of the kings and not to Finn McCool, to whom you were given for a wife. Oh, dear mother, the sweet words, whose voice is like wine to me, like the sleepy music of harps that are played in a wood of silver and gold. I had no power over the love I gave you on that night of feasting in Tara. I saw the little shining star that is on your forehead, and my heart fell down before you at that moment. And when you came near me, it was as though great fires were kindled in the darkness of my mind. 
as though honey were flowing through my body in golden, sweet streams. Daughter of the king, I am very weary with this pipe. My love, my thousand treasures, if you are weary... I am weary indeed, Gloria. I will cut heather and rushes and spread them for your bed. Would you do that for me, daughter of the king? I will go out into the night, Jermyn. I will climb over the rocks and stones until I come to where green rushes grow. I'll cut them for your bed. I'll spread them softly. Give me a knife, Jermyn, to cut the rushes with. Give me a knife, son of Dun. Oh, Gronia. Gronia, the ready tongue and of the wayward, forgetful mind. Why do you not look for the knife in its sheath? What do you mean? The knife is in its sheath, here in my thigh, where you yourself placed it, Gronia. Uh... Draw the knife out of its sheath. With your own two hands, daughter of the king. Jermyth! Jermyth! Hush. Hush, my share of the world. The waves shall chant our bridal song tonight. You will leave broken bread behind us in this place tomorrow, Jermyth. We'll leave broken bread behind us in this place for Fenmacol. It was at the end of the second season that the little theatre had, in some ways, its most sensational success. And the play, need I say, was The Old Lady Says No. Perhaps the author's own story may help us to see the background. The old lady like all of my plays, has been written several times over in several different ways. I've always been rather an inquiring type, interested in the question of what would happen if you did this or that, and the old lady was no exception, a sort of anthology of producers' experiments. What would happen if operatic methods were used for prose, if a different kind of dialogue was written and not intended to convey the impression of conversation, but to express attitudes of mind, speech with the quality that would get a response from an audience because of association of ideas that were already there. Dialogue made up largely of slogans and songs and quotations that put familiar things in a new context. It was written originally for the Abbey and called, if I remember rightly, Shadow Dance. So Yeats was the principal person to criticise it. And under his direction, I cut it down from a full-length play to a little over an hour in length and fiddled with this and that until it became patently obvious that uh, my vulgarity was intentional and that the only portion of the play that Lady Gregory really liked, the opening scene, was not intended seriously at all but was written in a jeering spirit. It was a respectful, soft-spoken wrangle, but it was a wrangle nonetheless until it reached the point where 
this tremendous old man finally offered me £50 if I would go away with my play. If we put on your play, he said to me, we will alienate our audience and lose £50. We don't mind losing the £50, but we don't want to alienate our audience. So, if you will put on the play yourself, we will give you the £50 to help you to do so. Hilton and Michael were then in their first year at the Peacock, so Sheila Richards went to them and persuaded them to produce the play. I think persuaded is a fair description, as they were also under a great deal of pressure from their then business manager not to touch the thing, even for money. And this seemed quite a large sum in those days. However, they decided to go ahead, and the fact that the £50 materialised as only 15 when it came to the point uh, didn't stop them. And I put the thing back to its full length and did most of the things I'd been told not to do, only more so, a very good rule for dramatists, by the way. And, of course, I changed the name from that awful twee title to what it has been ever since. Uh, a slightly malicious change, of course, with a double meaning that it would be ridiculous for me to deny at my age. In those days, I didn't approve of authors at rehearsals, so I stayed away from my own, except insofar as a natural... Curiosity prompted me sometimes to steal up those stone stairs of the peacock and listen at the door. This I used to do until Sean Power, who was still, by the way, in the box office of the gate, went in and reported that the author was hanging around behaving rather like a father outside a maternity hospital. Then I really had to stay away, which is just as well, as rehearsals were sometimes quite stormy and... Uh, on at least two occasions, Mary Moore rang me up in the evening to say that not only was the play off, but that the script had gone out the window into Abbey Street and that the Gate Theatre, as an organisation, had come to an end. However, I used to tell her to go back the next day, and she did, and of course, rehearsals were still going on. I wasn't at the first night either, but it was reported to me in a blow-by-blow -blow account over the box office telephone as this person and that person left. It was not at all an enjoyable week as a first introduction to authorship, quite the reverse. But I realise on looking back at it from this distance the advantages that it had, particularly in giving me an experience that I've never yet, never since had a, had a repetition of. A, a real union of the three elements that go to make the theatre. Actor, uh, director and author each giving something to the other and making more, not less, of the finished product by what he is giving to the play. Dramatists are usually heard to say, so-and-so ruined my play and that's the reason why it flopped. I could never say that of the old lady because quite as much of it is the contribution of Hilton and Michael as ever came from me. As for me, the part of Robert Emmett in the old lady says no remains still the most musically exhilarating experience that I've ever had on the stage. I do not fear to approach the omnipotent judge to answer for the conduct of my short life, and am I to stand here appalled before this mere remnant of mortality? 
I do not imagine that your lordships will give credit to what I have to utter. I have no hopes that I can anchor my character in the breast of this court. I, I only wish your lordships may suffer it to float down your memories until it has found some more hospitable harbor to shelter it. For <laughs> now is the axe put to the root of the tree so that every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. My fan is in my hand, and I will purge my floor and gather the wheat into the barn. But I will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. The part of Sarah Curran in that first production of The Old Lady was taken by a young Dublin actress who had just returned after touring with Seymour Hicks. Overnight, she became one of the company's brightest stars and was to play with him for many years. Her name was Mariel Moore. My first meeting with Hilton and Michael was just before the first production of The Old Lady Says No. They were looking for someone to play Sarah Curran and the old flower woman, and Dennis Johnson sent me along to see them. I hadn't grasped that the part was mainly a raucous old hag, and so I put on my best clothes for the audition. Poor Hilton and Michael were naturally rather startled when confronted with this neat and tidy young woman speaking in the accents of Ball's Bridge. However, I read a bit with Michael, <clears throat> and they began to realise that I had grown up to the sound of the Dublin flower women with their penny a bunch the violets. And they decided to take a chance, and so we proceeded to the first rehearsal. I remember Hilton made quite a little speech before we started work and explained that this was a mad play and we just have to be prepared to do mad things and trust him. By the end of an exhausting day, most of us were wondering who was the maddest, Hilton, Dennis or ourselves. But Hilton, of course, was quite right. He knew exactly what he was doing, and the result was a brilliant production of a very exciting play. The Old Lady was the end of the first season. Only those who lived through that theatrically exciting period in Dublin will have any notion of the revolution wrought by the Gate Company. Dr. C.P. Curran, who was then drama critic for the Irish Statesman, has this to say of it. Dublin was never more theatre-conscious than it was when pulling out of its civil disorders 30 and more years ago. The Abbey, of course, was the focus of interest, but the plays which F.J. McCormick and his fellow actors were winning there was seasoned with a good deal of tart criticism. This criticism fell under many heads, but it turned chiefly upon slackness of production with stage sets as drab as the kitchen dresser without Delph and the continued indifference against which Edward Martin had vainly protested to anything but the money-making country comedy. To some it seemed that for the Abbey, the European stage, with all its new wealth of colour and experiment, did not exist. To do the directors justice, they did take some steps to meet this criticism. The extent of the hospitality of the theatre to the Drama League for the staging of fathered masterpieces and lent them some of their players. They set up the Peacock as an experimental studio and the attempt at an Abbey School of Ballet. Looking back on those years, the Drama League, like Edward Martin's Theatre in Hardwick Street, did remarkable work. Both groups put on between them plays by Claudel, Pirandello, Chekhov 
Andriev, Strindberg, and Toller. And the acting of a certain Paul Rutledge in Pirandello is still sticks in one's memory. But as a whole, the Drama League performances had as much of the entertaining defects of the amateur as his virtues. They carried into the theatre the atmosphere of brilliant drawing room charades. They were amateurs, coquetting with the avant-garde. Happily, at this moment, new ministers were standing at the gate. In 1928, just a month after Nanette de Valois had put on an Irish ballet by Harold White, Michael McLearmore and Hilton Edwards rang up the curtain on Per Gint. It was our real introduction to what, in their different fields, the Agalef and ballet and stage decor, the Fauve and Cubists in painting, had been long working at. On the tiny peacock stage, Hilton and Michael revealed a whole new world, flooded with colour or edged in silhouette, crafty and imaginative inventions, always significant, always bearing directly on the action of the play. Fortnight after fortnight for the next 12 months, the ran the, the gamut of the contemporary theatre. Plays expressionist, plays classical or romantic, Irish, French, Scandinavian, American or Czechoslovakian, all carried through with great technical skill and insight and with many passages of fine acting. The call for a moment from Pergunt, the freshness of the mountain farms, the dark encounters of the night, the grotesque horror of the troll's hall within the hill, and contrast this with the bare classic austerity of Paul Reynal's unknown soldier, where McLeamore reached a very high plane indeed of imaginative acting. And then the amazing, perfectly coordinated production of Dennis Johnston's Old Lady, with which the tenure of the peacock ended. These were true men of the theatre, artists of astonishing versatility, who understood and delighted in the material in which they worked, and knew, at the cost of unremitting hard work, how to focus all the arts on that objective. Next year, they opened in their own theatre with Goethe's Faust. All Dublin came up, like the foam breaking on the gate, the familiar curtain of black and gold. And no one who is there will forget the cold of that icy February night, or the warmth of the tumultuous assembly. There was a cast of 50, and they played out the two parts of Faust in 18 scenes, with only the slightest interval. It was a great tour de force, and showed how far the gate had passed beyond its first little stage, where every gesture had to be measured, and a hand's breadth mattered. But the question still remained, what, what are, are we, we going, going to, to do, do now? now? Gay Theatre Venture. To acquire spacious halls. Saving Irish drama. Gay Theatre Studios' £3,000 scheme. The Gay Theatre's future. An interesting experiment. Limited, Limited company, company with permanent premises. An evening mail representative was informed in Dublin today that the Gate Theatre in Abbey Street had shown a loss of £176 on its working during the two seasons since October 1928. In the prevailing circumstances, £3 was the maximum profit to be derived from a successful production. 
the company has now decided, should the necessary funds be forthcoming, to acquire larger and permanent premises for the theatre by adapting the concert room at the Rotunda. £3,000 will be required to effect this change and provide accommodation for 420 patrons. But £3,000 in 1929 was to many people a very large sum of money. So that while 1,000 of the gate company's £1 shares were quickly taken up, there remained 2,000 on hands. Three months after the first announcement, that's to say in the middle of September, Hilton threw a press conference and also threw a bombshell. You can take it from me, definitely that if we don't get this money in a month's time, the Dublin Gate Theatre will not be reopened. We believe that the Dublin Theatre, if it is to live and flourish, must be taken seriously, not only in Ireland, but abroad. That for this purpose, it's not sufficient to have a national theatre for the production of plays by Irish authors. We hold it's essential also that Dublin should see the work of other writers and of other countries. Well, uh, during those two crowded seasons at the Peacock, the Gate Company had produced no fewer than 16 plays. Of these, only two, and they were short curtain raises, had ever been seen in Ireland before. But how to raise the money? Ah, those meetings, those meetings. I think of them still in a series of private rooms in big hotels where we talked shares and dividends and profit and losses. Would it be worthwhile? Oh, but surely, Mr. Chairman, it is obvious. You must all see the Dublin. This is not the time for anything but the hardest facts. When I think of the beauty of some of them. Oh, what an opportunity for the Irish public. And indeed, the production of Ibsen and Chekhov especially. Don't you think this is a very moment? One guinea? Yes, one guinea. And a board of directors? Of course. We must ask one of the red. That is quite inevitable. Well, we finally emerged with an impressive shareholding scheme, a limited company and a board of directors on which Hilton and I were placed and given the subtitle Life, Hilton being nominated as chairman. Run the so by a stupendous coincidence, it finally happened that the place they'd first dreamed of as the home of their new theatre, the once-on-a-time concert hall of the Rotunda, became available. Yet another dream had come true for it was the place they had spotted a year before from an upstairs room in Groom's Hotel in Cavendish Row. Ah, uh, but inside, inside it was a vast and melancholy ruin. The arched ceiling was beautiful still, but it was all cold and dim and laden with dust. And a small platform with broken chairs stood at the far end. At the other end there was a fireplace, and bits of tattered paper chains hung limply from lofty, outraged corners, and Cobwebs stretched a malignant obscurity on the walls. I called out to Hilton. Well, what do you think of this? I like it, don't you? Oh, I don't know. It's all so dark and empty. Well, what you? the hell do you expect? Buckingham Palace? Oh, you know. wait. We could do things with this place. Yeah, Big things. Mm. But it'll need a deuce of a lot of work done on it. Mm. And that, of course, is the cue for Michael Scott, the architect, who'd also been a professional and successful actor. Michael Scott, who so miraculously transformed the old concert hall into the Gate Theatre we know today, and recently transformed it again. Well do I remember the job we had creating the gate. There was a small entrance hall off Parnell Square, and a timber staircase in one flight, both contrary to bylaws. The staircase led to the small landing off the auditorium. There was no proper foyer, and the public lavatories were in an old and decaying thrust-out 
of the very minimum accommodation. Then there was the floor, the floor of what had once been the concert hall. As we found it, it was as flat as a pancake. But we had to put in a slope floor for three reasons. First, Hilton wanted a low stage to enable the actors to mount the stage from the auditorium if necessary. Secondly, to gain the maximum height from the stage to the ceiling as we could not disturb the old roof, and thirdly, of course, so that the audience could see perfectly. Off the old concert hall was the old supper room. This space had to contain office, dressing rooms, wardrobe, a place for keeping the costumes, and what's known as the scene dock, where the scenery is kept when not in use. All of these, of course, were completely inadequate and had to be constructed in the skimpiest manner. We couldn't even afford to paint the walls. Right from the day we started work transforming Concert Hall into theatre, right till the rise of the curtain on the first night, there were continuous arguments and discussion with the officials of the corporation about what could and could not be done. The result could, of course, only be a compromise. But had it not been for the fact that Hilton and Michael dug in their feet, overcame the incredible working difficulties behind the stage, and that they both worked miracles on the stage itself, miracles of acting and scenery and lighting, there would have been no gate theatre. The one-time Rotunda Concert Hall, with a capacity of no more than 420, saw the gate company open with Goethe's Faust. Who on that night of first nights will forget the Brocken scene in which Hilton and Michael as Mephistopheles and Faust reached a climax of volume and speed together that was terrific? Would you not like a broomstick? As for me, I wish I had a good stout ram to ride, for we are still far from the appointed place. Is not a staff is help enough for me? What good in making short a pleasant way? Already spring kindles the birchen spray, and the hoar pines have quickly felt her breath. Shall she not also work within our limb? I do not feel the influence of spring. My body is all winter, and I wish the flowers upon our path were frost and snow. But see how melancholy risen now, dimly uplifting her belated beam, the blank unwelcome round of the red moon. Now vigorously seize my cloak and gain this pinnacle of isolated crag. You may observe with wonder from this point how Mammon glows among the mountains. Aye, a melancholy light, like the red dawn, shoots from the lowest gorge of the abyss and near us. See, sparks spring out of the ground like golden sand, scattered upon darkness. The pinnacles of those black mountain walls that hem us in are kindled. Rare faith does not old Mammon gloriously illumine his palace for this festival. See, I spy the boisterous guests already. How the children of the wind rage in the air. Cling tightly to the old ribs of this crag. If once they tear you from the rocky ledge in their fierce flight towards the wilderness, their breath will sweep you into dust and hurl your body to a grave in the abyss. Do you not hear strange accents in the air? Aloft, afar, near. Witches are singing. 
Notes like spark and spark spread and whistle through the dark. Hail the stock! Hail the stock! Ronging, jostling, raging, rustling, what whispering, babbling, hissing, bustling, what glimmering, spurting, stinking, burning, as heaven and earth were overturning. Take hold of me, or we shall be divided. Faust! Where are you? Here! What, so far off already? The torrent of the clouds sweeps over us. Who is that yonder? Mark how well. It is Lilith. Who? Lilith, the first wife of Adam. Beware of her fair hair, for she excels all women in the magic of her locks. And when she winds them round a young man's neck, she will not ever set him free again. Why do you let the dark girl pass from you? A red mouse in the middle of her singing sprang from her mouth. <laughs> do not disturb your hour of happiness by close consideration of such trifles. Then I saw... What? Do you not see a pale... Fair girl standing alone there, far away. Now she approaches us with faltering steps. It seems as if she moved with shackled feet. I cannot overcome the thought that she is like poor Margaret. Let it be. Pass on. No good can come of this. It is not well to meet her. She's an enchanted phantom, a lifeless idol. With her numbing look, she freezes up the blood of men, and they who meet her ghastly stare are turned to stone like those who saw Medusa. Oh, too true. Her eyes are like the, the eyes of a fresh corpse which no beloved hand has closed, alas. That is the breast which Margaret yielded to me. That is the lovely body I enjoy. It is all magic, poor deluded fool. She looks to every man like his first love. Oh, what delight, what woe. I cannot turn my eyes from her sweet, piteous countenance. How strangely does a single blood-red line not broader than the sharp edge of a knife Adorn her lovely neck, a prisoner shut up in a dungeon. Oh, treacherous spirit, you have concealed her misery from me. You would let her helplessly die. She is not the first. Abominable monster, save her of your curse forever. I cannot loosen the bonds of the Avenger. Save her. Who caused her ruin, you or I? Take me to her. She must be freed. Take me to her, I command you. Free her. I will take you. Hear what I can do. I will cloud the wits of the warders. You shall take the keys and bear her off with mortal hands. I shall wait for you, and my magic horses shall carry you both away. This much I can do. Away. Away! Our most exciting discovery that year, I think, was Betty Chancellor. She was a curious little creature with smoky brown hair that grew with a sort of heedless subtlety around a pale, childish face with shapely, supplicating eyes. And she spoke with a purring Dublin drawl that misled many Irish and all English people into thinking that she lived in a pleasant coma. They kept me on for the first season in the new theatre, I well remember the terrible cold of the theatre, the things that kept going wrong and were swept aside by Hilton and Michael's imagination and energy. 
My self-consciousness faded under Hilton's direction. Don't teapot about, dear. If you're going to make a mistake, make a big one. Then a roar. Don't drop your voice at the end of every line. If you do that again, my darling, I swear I will come up on the stage and strangle you. When despair set in, Michael was always there with just the right word of praise, the perfect clue to the character of the part. Not long ago, I heard one of America's most celebrated teachers of acting speak, Mr. Lee Strasberg of the Actor's Studio. He said, to every new student I say, get up on the stage and wrestle with a crocodile. Hilton and Michael never taught me that, and as a matter of fact, I've never had a part, not even in Peter Pan, where this accomplishment would be useful. But I have worked for many directors, some of them famous, without ever finding just that thing that Michael and Hilton have got. Came and went their third season, their fourth season, during which they all but flattened Dublin theatre goes with Georg Kaiser's gas, the romantic Barclays Square, and Shaw's Back to Methuselah in its entirety. That famous scene between Eve and the serpent, how it must have shocked. Wonderfully clever of you. I am the most subtle of all the creatures of the field. Your hood is most lovely. Pretty thing. Do you love your godmother, Eve? I adore Eve's wonderful darling snake. Eve will never be lonely now that her snake can talk to her. I can talk of many things. I am very wise. It was I who whispered the word to you that you did not know. Dead. Dead. Die. Why do you remind me of it? I forgot it when I saw your beautiful hood. You must not remind me of unhappy things. Death is not an unhappy thing when you have learned how to conquer it. How can I conquer it? By another thing called birth. What is birth? The serpent. Someday you shall see me come out of this beautiful skin, a new snake with a new and lovelier skin. That is birth. I have seen that. It is wonderful. If I can do that, what can I not do? I tell you, I am very subtle. When you and Adam talk, I hear you say, why? Always, why? You see things and you say, why? But I dream things that never wear and I say why not I made the word dead to describe my old skin that I cast when I am renewed I call that renewal being born 
born is a beautiful word. Why not be born again and again as I am, new and beautiful every time? I does not happen. That is why. It is how, but it is not why. Why not? But I should not like it. It would be nice to be new again. But my old skin would lie on the ground looking just like me. And Adam would see it shrivel up and... No, he need not. There is a second birth. A second birth? Listen, I will tell you a very great secret. I am subtle and I have thought and thought and thought. And I am very willful and I must have what I want. And I have willed and willed and willed. And I have eaten strange things, stones and apples that you are afraid to eat. You dared? I dared everything. And at last I found a way of gathering together a part of the life in my body. And I shot it into a tiny white case made of the stones I had eaten. And what good was that? I showed the little case to the sun. And I left it in its warmth, and it burst, and a little snake came out. And it became bigger and bigger from day to day until it was as big as I. That was the second birth. Oh, that is too wonderful. It stirs inside me. It hurts. You are very subtle. Tell me what to do. Red, the sun will give life. I do not trust the sun. I will give life myself. I will tear another atom from my body if I tear my body to pieces in the act. Do dare it. Everything is possible, everything. But for us in the gate that year, 1931, was distinguished, not, I think, so much for our full-length back to Methuselah as because it introduced us to two people who would play a very large part in our lives and in the life of the theatre that we had built together. In those days, our board of directors included Gordon Campbell, Logdenevy. Gordon was that rare and terrifying creature, a pessimist of brilliance. He was as bright as a rainbow. He was also as depressing as a dramatist. He'd spent several months warning us that we were on the brink of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Unless someone buys up the remaining shares, and there's at least 300 of them, well, uh, the only thing to do... Uh, yes, Gordon, yes? Well, the only thing I can see to do... Yes? ...will be to liquidate. Oh. oh. We'd expected some brilliant solution, and this, it seemed, was it. Mm. And everything that Gordon said was so convincing, too. One would no more have doubted Gordon than an early father of the church would have doubted the Bible. So we weren't exactly surprised when he proved us to be 700 pounds in debt. Oh. And a sad little meeting of depressed-looking shareholders was held. And at this meeting, everyone seemed to take it for granted that we were finished. Oddly enough, you know, I didn't feel that we were. Probably because I'm a fatalist, really, and rely so largely on instinct in all times of crisis. So that I was hardly surprised when a stout, rosy-cheeked young stranger rose to his feet and said in clear, ringing tones that betrayed Eton and Oxford that he would very much like to buy the remainder of the shares and that his cheque was ready whenever it was wanted. <laughs> well, sensation reigned, of course, and I whispered to Hilton, Who's that? 
To which Hilton replied, I, I don't know. And then Lord Glenavy said, It's Lord Longford. And that was the beginning of the Longford regime. Why did I do it? Because it seemed the only possible thing to do. I thought Dublin had to have a theatre, an independent theatre, an artistic theatre, not confined to any one type of drama. I thought so then, and I think so still. At that time, a matter of £300 or so made all the difference for the gate between survival and extinction. I had the money to spare. The case was put clearly to the shareholders at the meeting. No one else seemed in a position to do anything. So I took the plunge and became owner of the shares. Subsequently, I took a larger part in the company's financial affairs. I became a director and soon after chairman. It wasn't all the result of a sudden impulse. When I first was told by Madame Bernard Cogley of the plan to start such a theatre as The Gate, I immediately became interested. I was greatly excited by the original Peacock seasons. I got to know Hilton Edwards and Michal MacLeamore, though at that time only slightly. And when the Dublin Gate Theatre Company Limited was formed, I took a hundred pounds worth of shares. The theatre in Parnell Square opened its doors early in 1930. Then came one difficulty after another. It looked as if the newly formed theatrical movement, which had promised so splendidly, must founder in a sea of troubles. I felt this must not be allowed if I could stop it. I did what I could. The gate was saved. It still exists and has won a great reputation throughout the world. Thanks to Hilton and Mehal and all the others who have worked and striven there. The Longfords were quite delightful and manifested a keen interest in the theatre and in everything that belongs to the theatre, like children who have discovered well, not a new toy exactly, but a fresh purpose in life. Soon they were coming to the gate to watch the performance almost every night, almost every night of their lives. Well, one morning, I remember, we were making plans for the next production and Hilton walked suddenly into the scene dock where I was painting a set. And he said... The strangers arrived from America. Come and see what you think of it. Oh, what is it? Tall, young, fat. Says he's been with the Guild Theatre in New York. Don't believe a word of it. But he's interesting. I want him to give me an audition. Uh -huh. Says he's been in Connemara with a donkey. I don't see what that's got to do with me. <laughs> Come and have a look at him. Well, the young man from America was someone who, not many years later, was to stream like a man-made satellite across the star-strewn firmaments of American radio, Hollywood and Broadway. He was Orson Welles. I hadn't come to Ireland to be an actor. I thought I was a painter and I was supposed to be on a holiday trip. But I looked on it myself as the beginning of a painting career. I'd landed in Galway that spring, bought myself an ass and a cart and set off. Kept my paints in the cart, slept under it at night and by day with a donkey, whose name was Sheog, ambled pleasantly along the Irish roads between the ten pins of Connemara. It was a grand summer. I spent the end of it in Inishir, which, as you know, is the smallest of the Aran Islands, 
and there were other fine adventures, including a voyage up the Shannon in a porter barge. And by October, I was expected back in America and back in school. School, however, was no part of my own personal program. However, I realized on the day I found myself in Dublin that I'd come to the end of what are delicately referred to as financial resources. Now, if I'd been willing to go back to school, I might have wired for the boat fare. Getting a job was the alternative, ditch digging or dishwashing. Next morning, I planned to look about for such a position, but since the few shillings left in my pocket were certainly not enough to build a budget on, I blew the lot on one last good dinner and a ticket to the theater. That theater was the gate, Hilton and Michael's gate. Fortune, that perverse trollop, gives herself freely only to those who woo her, not at all. And I was surely the least ardent of suitors. I wasn't a suitor at all. I was just playing hooky or truant. See, it happened that among the minor actors in the play I went to see that night, there was a young folklorist I'd met somewhere in the Gale Talks. And backstage after the show, he introduced me in his sociable way to the theater's directors, to Mr. Michael McLeamore and Mr. Hilton Edwards. I introduced myself to them as Mr. Orson Welles, a celebrated actor from the Broadway stage. Everyone looked startled at this, including myself. To my own further astonishment, I heard myself hinting gracefully that just for a lark, I might just possibly be persuaded to stay on in Ireland for a brief season, that is, if uh, sufficiently interesting leading roles could be found for me. Now, what possessed me? Certainly not ambition. If anything, it was the total lack of ambition that led me into telling that absolute whopper. The very suggestion that I might manage to pay my hotel bill by becoming an actor was so preposterous that a preposterous story seemed the only appropriate way of proposing it. Another question presents itself, of course. Why was this tall story believed in the first place? Well, very probably it was not. Very probably Hilton and Michael saw through my masquerade, even at the start, and were much too kind to challenge it. Of course, what matters, as far as my own career was concerned, is that they were so generously and courageously ready to give a strange newcomer that extraordinary chance. And so it was that a truant from school on the eve of his career as a ditch digger capriciously consented to delay his plans long enough to play a star role on the stage. But Hilton and Michael gave me a great deal more than my first chance to act, much more than a good job. They gave me an education. Whatever I know today about any of the theater arts is only an extension of what I first learned from them. In London, you know, in Paris, New York, we compare the Gate Theatre, the Gate Theatre of Hilton Edwards and Michael McLeamore, to the Vieux Colombier of Jacques Capot and Louis Jouvet, and to the Moscow Art of Nemirovich and Stanislavski. We never speak of the Gate without acknowledging that, like all great theatre companies, it was a wonderful school. We who are graduates of the Gate, scattered as we are over the wide world, Dan O'Hurley, Siobhan McKenna, James Mason, Geraldine Fitzgerald, and the rest of us, however extensive or limited our term of gate experience may have been, we're all of us very proud of our schooling and unimaginably grateful for it. But even the massive genius of the young Orson Welles didn't quite manage to pep up, as it should have done, Dublin's interest in its new theatre. Oh, what did they want, we wondered? Surveying life as just as over a landscape shrouded in a rain of hard work and quarrels and bills for canvas and paint and timber and costumes, 
No money to pay for them. What did they want? Chekhov's seagull went on, Shaw's heartbreak house, Flecker's Don Juan, the Nibson's brand, but no one saw the them. The singer by Patrick Pierce drew some scattered patriots to our doors, certainly, and Romeo and Juliet met with an enormous success in the back seats only. And, uh, hardly any one of the expensive seats were filled, and this has remained one of the great gate mysteries. For when Romeo was revived two years later, everybody came to see it. Perhaps there's a moral there. No, it wasn't merely a financial bloom, either. Edward Longford had most nobly stood over the losses incurred by his magnificent translation of the Agamemnon, and he was ready with a loan for Dennis Johnston's A Bride for the Unicorn, but our luck seemed to have turned. Were we, we wondered, already out of fashion? Obviously we were, and why did all our artists want bigger salaries, and why was the price of everything so monstrous? Well, there is, of course, such a thing as the Dublin audience, as Orson Welles was to discover. Well, Dublin is surely, among many other things, the grand capital of eloquence. In this remarkable city, or at least in my day, a theatre audience enjoys, delights in, and demands the privilege of free speech. Here the dialogue from a theatre gallery may be more diverting than what's spoken on the stage. The first night of a play can be a riot, literally a riot, Actors, myself included, have more than once been forced to seek police protection from their public. The audiences, who, as they say in French, assist performances in the Gate Theatre, are in the city's highest traditions. Well, my own first experience of a Dublin first night was in this theatre. Hilton had cast me in the role of the profligate and depraved Archduke in Feuchtwanger's Jusus. In fact, it was the first part I ever tried to play on any stage. And I commenced my career blissfully unburdened by anything remotely resembling first-night nerves. There was a reason for this lofty calm, the bliss of ignorance. Like a baby on a trapeze, or a drunk taking the crest to run on the seat of his trousers, I was happy because I simply didn't know any better. Under all that grease paint was a brash young greenhorn who had yet to celebrate his 16th birthday and who wasn't scared of anything because nothing had ever happened to him. I was like Donald Duck or Pluto when they go running off a cliff into empty space. They continue quite a long distance before they glance down and then suddenly realize that they aren't standing on anything, and that's when they fall. Without any experience or knowledge or technique, the fledgling actor trips merrily along, treading air as a swimmer treads water, and then the moment comes when he realizes where one is in a theater full of people, and to understand exactly what that means it is for a happy dream to change into a nightmare. Well, by act four on that first night, I had aged somewhat. This was partly because I was supposed to do so in the play, but I had grown older under the grease paint as well. By act four, a terrible truth had dawned on me, that an audience is not so much a compliment to an actor's ego as a challenge to his capacities. In act four, I received my first challenge. I was not only innocent of any experience in the theater, but of any experience with an Irish audience. I had no inkling of the Dubliner's almost professional pride in unpredictability. It was not for many years that police riot squads would actually be called out to shield me from the wrath of the Dublin public or part of it, but that's another story and one I'd better not be telling here. This was still the first of all my first nights, but I did receive a pretty sharp intimation then of what was in store for me. Act four, as I say, and a very pretty girl Betty Chancellor, had just left the stage. I was supposed to leer after a departing figure, chortle lecherously, and speak the following line. I can still remember it exactly. <laughs> Indeed, I don't think I'll ever be able to forget it. A bride fit for Solomon, I was to say. 
Uh, but it was the next phrase which for some reason gave offense. Solomon had a thousand wives, did he not? Now, at this moment, an indignant male voice rose loudly from somewhere in the audience. That, said the voice, is a dirty black Protestant lie. Now, I've given that remark a good deal of serious thought. As a matter of fact, I've been brooding over it off and on for the past quarter of a century and have yet to work out an adequate reply. That angry voice gave me my first moment of feeling like somebody unfortunate in a Disney cartoon. With that cry from the darkness, it was borne in upon me with frightful force that as an actor, I wasn't so much skating on thin ice as walking on thin air. Realizing this, like Pluto the pup, I started to fall. And speaking of falling, it was actually a fall that saved me in Act Five. In the play, I was supposed to die of apoplexy, and in fact, I was half dead from fright. Just prior to the final curtain, I had been instructed by Hilton to draw my sword, brandish it, shout, ring the bells and fire the cannon, and slump lifelessly back onto my throne. Now that an audience is not necessarily a friendly gathering of well-wishers, but can be something very like a yawning pit, alive with ravening lions, was a discovery that had rather flustered me. Unnerved by that sudden voice from the fifth row center, my own voice wobbled between basso and boy soprano as I addressed myself to the closing speech. Uh, the sword, of course, had got itself stuck in the scabbard. I didn't know then that this always happens, that on opening nights an invisible little man sneaks backstage and glues the swords into the scabbards. This same specialist, as I've since learned also, jams at least one door, removes the blank cartridges from the gun, and short-circuits the telephone bell, purely routine. But of course, I was ignorant of this, and it was some time before I abandoned my struggle with the sword. This left me with nothing but my dying words, which might well, as things turned out, have been my swan song in the theater. Ring the cannons, I cried shrilly. Ring the cannons and fire all the bells. At this, the audience in the gate theater was stunned into a moment of puzzled silence. Before anyone out front could volunteer another comment and in a mood of suicide, I flung myself headfirst down the whole flight of stairs. Now, made as it was in the full, muscular flower of boyhood, that was quite a dive. It was the only thing I could think of at the moment, and I didn't care whether it killed me or not. It almost did. But also, it brought down the house. Dubliners are keen critics, but they can be generous, too. It's more than probable that nothing like that backflip had been seen anywhere near the shores of the Liffey before. Here was an actor who could fall down on his head and make you believe it. In all the long, striving years since my debut, I've never received such an ovation. Ed Woodlongford was beginning to take an active interest in the casting of plays, and Hilton, reared in a tradition inflexible as that of the samurai of Japan, shared with me the belief that, with the exception of the author, if living and or present, casting was the business of the producer, and so, alas, Friction began on the board. In the matter of the choice of plays, we would and could be led and advised. But in casting, we were as obstinate as mules. Oh, yes, and it was all very difficult to deal with, too, because we weren't doing so well, no. And one day on the hillside at Hoth, Hilton and I began to talk things over. Where does it all lead to? We've done a hundred productions here. Do you realize that? A hundred productions, good, bad, and indifferent. Now, in a real city, we should either be made or broken by now, but here we are drifting along with Edward Longford taking the reins, a rich man new to the theatre, forcing the pace with the plays and casts that are just wrong, paying salaries to an increasing number of amateurs and 
generously lending us money whenever we get into a hole that we should never have been shoved into in the first place. And yet, apart from Edward, it's hopeless. The gate would probably be dead without him. I, I tell you, there aren't enough people in oh, Dublin. Oh, Dublin is no different from any other city in the world, and you know it, except, of course, in that one thing. God knows you're right. There aren't enough people. Half a million. It's fantastic. You know, what are you to do? Out of that conversation, there came the first flight abroad, the first appearance of the company in London at the Westminster Theatre. The month was June, the year 1935. They brought with them to the Westminster, The Old Lady, Edward Longford's play about Swift, Yahoo, and Hamlet, with, of course, Michael in the title role. Yahoo and the old lady met with a very real success, and people were talking about it in London everywhere. Hilton's performance as Swift was received with tumult, and his production of the old lady won laurels for all of us. Back at home, those board meetings grew more and more difficult. They came to a head over an offer, the third, from the Egyptian government, inviting the company to perform in Cairo and Alexandria, a chance that any company would have leapt at. But, mysteriously, Lord Longford was against it adamant and after weeks of arguing and cajoling he surprisingly suggested that if they felt so strongly about going to egypt why didn't they go on their own which was to say their own financial responsibility and so it was agreed that the company was to be billed as the dublin gate theater company and so they parted in good terms but on the return to dublin after a highly successful tour in egypt the split seemed more than ever inevitable Liquidation of the company, the only practical course. Mm, and the end came quite suddenly, if not exactly unexpectedly. There was a big public meeting of shareholders of which Hilton and I were given a majority of votes and the official title of the gate to use as our own. In the future, we were to be known as Gate Theatre Productions, while Edward's newly formed company was to be known as Longford Productions. Hilton and I were to have the theatre at our disposal for six months of every year. During the war, one of Michael's most successful personal performances was as Rochester in Jane Eyre. Do you like my house, Jane? Do you feel happy at Thornfield? I have grown very fond of it, sir. You'd be sorry to leave it, would you? Yes. Mm, pity. Pity is always the same in this world. No sooner is one settled in a pleasant resting place than a voice calls out to one to move on. Must I move on, sir? Must I leave Thornfield? You know, I believe you must, Jane. I'm very sorry, but I believe you must. Well, I shall be ready when the order comes. It must come now, I fear. I must give the order tonight. I have decided that I'm going to marry Janet. Therefore, it is quite clear that Adele must go to school, and you, Miss Eyre, you must find a new situation. I will. I will advertise at once. There's no need. I've already heard of a place that I think would suit you very well. A family of girls in the, uh, the west of Ireland. You'll like Ireland, I think, Jane. It's a long way, sir. Is it? From what? From England. And from Thornfield. Well? And from you, sir. Yes. Yes, we, we've been good friends, Jane, haven't we? In a bare three weeks, you and I have grown astonishingly close to one another. Three weeks. It's absurd, really. And you know, Jane, I sometimes have the queerest feeling with regard to you, especially when you're near to me as you are now. It's just as if I had a string somewhere here under my left ribs. 
inextricably knotted to a similar string situated in the corresponding corner of your little frame, yes? Oh, yes, and if that boisterous Irish sea were to come between us, I'm so afraid that that cord of communion would be snapped, and then, you see, I, I have a nervous notion that I should take to bleeding inwardly. As for you, of course, you'll forget me. That I never should. You know that I never should. You hear the wind in the trees. Listen. I grieve to leave Thornfield. I love it. I love it. I have lived here for the first time. A full and delightful life. I have talked face to face with what I reverence with a vigorous and expanded mind. Yes, I have known you, sir. And I am full of anguish to know that I must be torn from you forever. I see the necessity for departure, and it is like looking on the necessity for death. And where do you see the necessity? I see it in the shape of Miss Ingram, a noble and very beautiful woman and your bride. I have no bride. You will have? Yes, I will, I will. Then I must go. You have said it yourself. You must stay, Jane. I swear it. I tell you I must go. No. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit. As if both had passed through the grave. And we stood together at God's feet. Equal. As we are. Jane, I offer you my hand. You are playing a farce. Jane, I want you to marry me. Have you no faith in me? Not often. Jane, I will convince you. What love have I for Blanche Ingram? None, and you know it, or she for me. You, you strange, you almost unearthly creature. I love as my own flesh. I, I beg you, Jane. Let me look at your eyes. Read what you will. Oh, Jane, you torture me with that searching it Faithful, generous look, you torture me. It's true. You do love me. You know it. And I love you. Jane. You'll be my wife, Jane. Yes. I will atone. And so ended, what shall we say? Chapter one, an era, a phase. Whatever it was, the, the partnership of Hilton Edwards and Michael McLeamore was to continue and flourish. Soon the world was to see them again, Cairo and Alexandria, Malta and Athens. Ireland, they toured from Cork to Belfast. The Balkans, 
Ljubljana, Zagreb, Belgrade, Salonika, Sofia, Bucharest. The United States of America, Canada, they came was seen conquered. They had added a word, a single monosyllable, to the language of international theatre, to names like the Vieux Colombier, the Théâtre Libre, the Moscow Arts Theatre. To these they have added the word gate. How wonderful it would sound in French, don't you think? Théâtre de la Barrière. They are still, as you might say, at it. The flights from Dublin, the frequent personal appearances with other companies, with film and radio and television performances, their scampers to Denmark and Egypt, the growing absence from the old home, the gate building itself, are now more and more associated with the name of Lord Longford. All these things are conceivably regrettable and, it may be hoped, impermanent. They are things that are readily understood. The fifties are not the thirties, and the gate has grown too small to make a serious company, unsubsidised by public or private money, a workable proposition. What does the future hold for them, or for this Dublin of ours, that they, the most knowledgeable men of the theatre in our midst, have served so long and so heedlessly of the future? A bigger gate, maybe? Who knows? You have been listening to Hilton and Michael, a tribute to the work in the Irish theatre of Hilton Edwards and Michal MacLeamor and the story of their work in the Gate Theatre Dublin. The programme was devised, produced and part spoken by H.L. Morrow. Besides Hilton Edwards and Michal MacLeamore, those taking part included Coralie Carmichael, Meriel Moore, Madame Banner Cogley, Orson Wells, Dennis Johnston, Betty Chancellor, Dr. C.P. Curran, Garrod O'Loughlin, Lord Longford, Michael Scott, and Dr. Walter Starkey. Members of the Radioware and Repertory Company taking part included Jeanette Waddell, Florence Lynch, an original member of the Gate Company, who played Harry in the extract from Per Gint, Daphne Carroll, who played Jane to Michal MacLeamore's Rochester in the scene from Jane Eyre, Deirdre O'Mara, Arthur O'Sullivan, Frank O'Dwyer, Connor Farrington, and Brendan Caldwell.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.